Volume One, Chapter Ten of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eddie Winter. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume One, Chapter Ten. After these events, it was long before we were able to attain any degree of composure. A moral tempest had wrecked our richly freighted vessel, and we, remnants of the diminished crew, were cast at the losses and changes which we had undergone. Idris passionately loved her brother, and could ill brook an absence whose duration was uncertain. His society was dear and necessary to me. I had followed up my chosen literary occupations with delight under his tutorship and assistance. His mild philosophy, unerring reason, and enthusiastic friendship were the best ingredient, the exalted spirit of our circle. Even the children bitterly regretted the loss of their kind playfellow. Deeper grief oppressed Perdita. In spite of resentment by day and night, she figured to herself the toils and dangers of the wanderers. Raymond, absent, struggling with difficulties, lost to the power and rank of the protectorate, exposed to the perils of war, became an object of anxious interest, not that she felt any inclination to recall him, if recall must imply a return to their former union. Such return she felt to be impossible, and while she believed it to be thus, and with anguish regretted that so it should be, she continued angry and impatient with him who occasioned her misery. These perplexities and regrets caused her to bathe her pillow with nightly tears, and to reduce her in person and in mind to the shadow of what she had been. She sought solitude and avoided us when in gaiety and unrestrained affection we met in a family circle. Lonely musings, interminable wanderings, and solemn music were her only pastimes. She neglected even her child, shutting her heart against all tenderness, she grew reserved towards me, her first and fast friend. I could not see her thus lost without exerting myself to remedy the evil. Remediless, I knew, if I could not in the end bring her to reconcile herself to Raymond. Before he went, I used every argument, every persuasion, to induce her to stop his journey. She answered the one with a gush of tears, telling me that to be persuaded, life and the goods of life were a cheap exchange it was not will that she wanted but the capacity again and again she declared it were as easy to enchain the sea to put reins on the wind's viewless courses as for her to take truth for falsehood deceit for honesty heartless communion for sincere confiding love she answered my reasonings more briefly declaring with disdain that the reason was hers and until i could persuade her that the past could be unacted, that maturity could go back to the cradle, and that all that was could become as though it had never been, it was useless to assure her that no real change had taken place in her fate. And thus, with stern pride, she suffered him to go, though her very heart-strings cracked at the fulfilling of the act, which rent from her all that made life valuable. To change the scene for her, and even for ourselves, all unhinged by the cloud that had come over us, I persuaded my two remaining companions that it were better that we should absent ourselves for a time from Windsor. We visited the north of England, 
my native Oldswater, and lingered in scenes dear from a thousand associations. We lengthened our tour into Scotland, that we might see Loch Katrine and Loch Lomond. Thence we crossed to Ireland, and passed several weeks in the neighbourhood of Killarney. The change of scene operated to a great degree, as I expected. After a year's absence, Perdita returned in gentler and more docile mood to Windsor. The first sight of this place, for a time, unhinged her. Here every spot was distinct with associations now grown bitter. The forest glades, the ferny dells, the lawny uplands, the cultivated and cheerful country, spread around the silver pathway of ancient Thames, all earth, air, and wave, took up one choral voice, inspired by memory, instinct with plaintive regret. But my essay towards bringing her to a saner view of her own situation did not end here. Perdita was still to a great degree uneducated. When first she left her peasant life and resided with the elegant and cultivated Evadne, the only accomplishment she brought to any perfection was that of painting, for which she had a taste almost amounting to genius. This had occupied her in her lonely cottage, when she quitted her Greek friend's protection. Her palette and easel were now thrown aside. Did she try to paint, thronging recollections made her hand tremble, her eyes fill with tears. With this occupation she gave up almost every other, and her mind preyed upon itself almost to madness. For my own part, since Adrian had first withdrawn me from my selvatic wilderness to his own paradise of order and beauty, I had been wedded to literature. I felt convinced that, however, it might have been in former times, in the present stage of the world, no man's faculties could be developed, no man's moral principles be enlarged and liberal, without an extensive acquaintance with books. To me they stood in the place of an active career of ambition and those palpable excitements necessary to the multitude. The collation of philosophical opinions, the study of historical facts, the acquirement of languages, were at once my recreation and the serious aim of my life. I turned author myself. My productions, however, were sufficiently unpretending. They were confined to the biography of favourite historical characters, especially those whom I believed to have been traduced or about whom clung obscurity and doubt. As my authorship increased, I acquired new sympathies and pleasures. I found another, and a valuable link to enchain me to my fellow creatures. My point of sight was extended, and the inclinations and capacities of all human beings became deeply interesting to me. Kings have been called the fathers of their people. Suddenly I became, as it were, the father of all mankind. Posterity became my heirs. My thoughts were gems to enrich the treasure-house of man's intellectual possessions. Each sentiment was a precious gift I bestowed on them. Let not these aspirations be attributed to vanity. They were not expressed in words, nor even reduced to form in my own mind, but they filled my soul, exalting my thoughts, raising a glow of enthusiasm, and led me out of the obscure path in which I had before walked into the bright noon-enlightened highway of mankind, making me, citizen of the world, a candidate for immortal honours, an eager aspirant to the praise and sympathy of my fellow-men. No one certainly ever enjoyed the pleasures of composition more intensely than I. If I left the woods, 
the solemn music of the waving branches and the majestic temple of nature i sought the vast halls of the castle and looked over wide fertile england spread beneath our regal mount and listened the while to inspiring strains of music at such times solemn harmonies or spirit-stirring airs gave wings to my lagging thoughts permitting them methought to penetrate the last veil of nature and her god and to display the highest beauty in visible expression to the understandings of men as the music went on my ideas seemed to quit their mortal dwelling-house they shook their pinions and began a fight setting on the placid current of thought filling the creation with new glory and rousing sublime imagery that else had slept voiceless then i would hasten to my desk weave the new-found web of mind in firm texture and brilliant colours leaving the fashioning of the material to a calmer moment but this account which might as properly belong to a former period of my life as to the present moment leads me far afield it was the pleasure i took in literature the discipline of mind i found arise from it that made me eager to lead Perdita to the same pursuits. I began with light hand and gentle allurement, first exciting her curiosity, and then satisfying it in such a way as might occasion her at the same time that she half forgot her sorrows in occupation, to find in the hours that succeeded a reaction of benevolence and toleration. Intellectual activity, though not directed towards books, had always been my sister's characteristic. It had been displayed early in life, leading her out to solitary musing among her native mountains, causing her to form innumerous combinations from common objects, giving strength to her perceptions and swiftness to their arrangement. Love had come as the rod of the master prophet to swallow up every minor propensity. Love had doubled all her excellences, and placed a diadem on her genius was she to cease love take the colours and odour from the rose change the sweet nutriment of mother's milk to gall and poison as easily might you wean perdita from love she grieved for the loss of raymond with an anguish that exiled all smile from her lips and trenched sad lines on her brow of beauty but each day seemed to change the nature of her suffering and every succeeding hour forced her to alter if so i may style it the fashion of her soul's mourning garb for a time music was able to satisfy the cravings of her mental hunger and her melancholy thoughts renewed themselves in each change of key and varied with every alteration in the strain my schooling first impelled her towards books and if music had been the food of sorrow the productions of the wise became its medicine the acquisition of unknown languages was too tedious an occupation for one who referred every expression to the universe within and read not as many do for the mere sake of filling up time but who was still questioning herself and her author moulding every idea in a thousand ways ardently desirous for the discovery of truth in every sentence she sought to improve her understanding mechanically her heart and dispositions became soft and gentle under this benign discipline after a while she discovered that amidst all her newly acquired knowledge her own character which formerly she fancied that she thoroughly understood became the first in rank among the terre incognite the pathless wilds 
of the country that had no chart. Erringly and strangely she began the task of self-examination with self-condemnation, and then again she became aware of her own excellences, and began to balance with just the scales the shades of good and evil. I, who longed beyond words to restore her to the happiness it was still in her power to enjoy, watched with anxiety the result of these internal proceedings. But man is a strange animal. We cannot calculate on his forces like that of an engine, and though an impulse draw with a faulty horsepower are what appears willing to yield to one, yet in contempt of calculation the movement is not effected. Neither grief, philosophy, nor love could make Perdita think with mildness of the dereliction of Raymond. She now took pleasure in my society. Towards Idris she felt and displayed a full and affectionate sense of her worth. She restored to her child in abundant measure her tenderness and care, but I could discover amidst all her repinings deep resentment towards Raymond, and an unfading sense of injury that plucked from me my hope when I appeared nearest to its fulfilment. Among other painful restrictions, she has occasioned it to become a law among us, never to mention Raymond's name before her. She refused to read any communications from Greece, desiring me only to mention when they arrived, and whether the wanderers were well. It was curious that even little Clara observed this law towards her mother. This lovely child was nearly eight years of age. Formerly she had been a light-hearted infant, fanciful but gay and childish. After the departure of her father, thought became impressed on her young brow. Children, unadepts in language, seldom find words to express their thoughts, nor could we tell in what manner the late events had impressed themselves on her mind. But certainly she had made deep observations while she noted in silence the changes that passed around her. She never mentioned her father to Bodita. She appeared half afraid when she spoke of him to me and though I tried to draw her out on the subject, and to dispel the gloom that hung about her ideas concerning him, I could not succeed. Yet each fond post-day she watched for the arrival of letters, knew the postmark, and watched me as I read. I found her often poring over the article of Greek intelligence in the newspaper. There is no more painful sight than that of untimely care in children, and it was particularly observable in one whose disposition had heretofore been mirthful. Yet there was so much sweetness and docility about Clara, that your admiration was excited, and if the moods of mind are calculated to paint the cheek with beauty and endow the emotions with grace, surely her contemplations must have been celestial, since every lineament was moulded into loveliness, and emotions were more harmonious and the elegant boundings of the fawns of her native forests. I sometimes expostulated with Perdita on the subject of her reserve, but she rejected my counsels, while her daughter's sensibility excited in her a tenderness still more passionate. After a lapse of more than a year, Adrian returned from Greece. When our exiles had first arrived, a truce was in existence between the Turks and Greeks a truce that was asleep to the mortal frame, signal of renewed activity on waking. With the numerous soldiers of Asia, with all of warlike stores, ships and military engines, that wealth and power could command, 
the Turks at once resolved to crush an enemy, which, creeping on by degrees, had from their stronghold in the Morea acquired Thrace and Macedonia, and had led their armies even to the gates of Constantinople, while their extensive commercial relations gave every European nation an interest in their success. Greece prepared for a vigorous resistance. It rose to a man, and the women, sacrificing their costly ornaments, accoutred their sons for the war, and bade them conquer or die with the spirit of the Spartan mother. The talents and courage of Raymond were highly esteemed among the Greeks. Born at Athens, that city claimed him for her own, and by giving him the commander of her peculiar division in the army, the commander-in-chief only possessed superior power. He was numbered among her citizens. His name was added to the lists of Grecian heroes. His judgment activity and consummate bravery justified their choice. The Earl of Windsor became a volunteer under his friend. It is well, said Adrian, to prate of war in these pleasant shades, and with much ill-spent oil make a show of joy because many thousands of our fellow-creatures leave with pain this sweet air and natal earth. I shall not be suspected of being averse to the Greek cause. I know and feel its necessity. It is beyond every other a good cause. I have defended it with my sword, and was willing that my spirit should be breathed out in its defence. Freedom is of more worth than life, and the Greeks do well to defend their privilege unto death. But let us not deceive ourselves. The Turks are men. Each fibre, each limb, is as feeling as our own, and every spasm, be it mental or bodily, is as truly felt in a Turk's heart or brain as in a Greek's. The last action of which I was present was the taking of Blanquilla. The Turks resisted to the last. The garrison perished on the ramparts, and we entered by assault. Every breathing creature within the walls was massacred. Think you, amidst the shrieks of violated innocence and helpless infancy, I did not feel in every nerve the cry of a fellow-being. There were men and women, the sufferers before there were Mahometans, and when they rise turbanless from the grave, in what, except their good or evil actions, will they be any better or worse than we? Two soldiers contended for a girl, whose rich dress and extreme beauty excited the brutal appetites of these wretches, who, perhaps good men among their families, were changed by the fury of the moment into incarnated evils. An old man with a silver beard, decrepit and bald, he might be her grandfather, interposed to save her. The battle-axe of one of them clove his skull. I rushed to her defence, but rage made them blind and deaf. They did not distinguish my Christian garb, or heed my words. Words were blunt weapons, then, for while war cried havoc, and murder gave fit echo, how could I turn back the tide of evils, relieving wrong with milder cost of soothing eloquence? One of the fellows, enraged at my interference, struck me with his bayonet in the side, and I fell senseless. This wound will probably shorten my life, having shattered a frame weak of itself, but I am content to die. I have learnt in Greece that one man more or less is of small import, while human bodies remain to fill up the thin ranks of the soldiery, and that the identity of an individual may be overlooked, so that the muster-roll contain its full numbers. All this has a different effect upon Raymond. He is able to contemplate the ideal of war, 
while i am sensible only to its realities he is a soldier a general he can influence the bloodthirsty war-dogs while i resist their propensities vainly the cause is simple burke has said that in all bodies those who would lead must also in a considerable degree follow i cannot follow for i do not sympathize in their dreams of massacre and glory to follow and to lead in such a career is the natural bent of raymond's mind he is always successful and bids fair at the same time that he acquires high name and station for himself to secure liberty probably extended empire to the greeks but eta's mind was not softened by this account he she thought can be great and happy without me would that i also had a career would that i could freight some untried bark with all my hopes energies and desires and launch it forth into the ocean of life bound for some attainable point with ambition or pleasure at the helm but adverse winds detain me on shore like ulysses i sit at the water's edge and weep but my nerveless hands can neither fell the trees nor smooth the planks under the influence of these melancholy thoughts she became more than ever in love with sorrow yet adrian's presence did some good he at once broke through the law of silence observed concerning raymond at first she started from the unaccustomed sound soon she got used to it and to love it and she listened with avidity to the account of his achievements clara got rid also of her restraint adrian and she had been old playfellows and now as they walked or rode together he yielded to her earnest entreaty and repeated for the hundredth time some tale of her father's bravery munificence or justice each vessel in the meantime brought exhilarating tidings from greece the presence of a friend in its armies and councils made us enter into the details with enthusiasm and a short letter now and then from raymond told us how he was engrossed by the interests of his adopted country the greeks were strongly attached to their commercial pursuits and would have been satisfied with their present acquisitions had not the turks roused them by invasion the patriots were victorious a spirit of conquest was instilled and already they looked on constantinople as their own raymond rose perpetually in their estimation but one man held a superior command to him in their armies he was conspicuous for his conduct and choice of position in a battle fought in the plains of thrace on the banks of the hebrus which was to decide the fate of islam the mahometans were defeated and driven entirely from the country west of this river the battle was sanguinary the loss of the turks apparently irreparable the greeks in losing one man forgot the nameless crowd strode upon the bloody field and they ceased to value themselves on a victory which cost them raymond at the battle of macri he had led the charge of cavalry and pursued the fugitives even to the banks of the hebrus his favourite horse was found grazing by the margin of the tranquil river it became a question whether he had fallen among the unrecognised but no broken ornament or stained trapping betrayed his fate it was suspected that the turks finding themselves possessed of so illustrious a captive resolved to satisfy their cruelty rather than their avarice and fearful of the interference of england had come to the determination of concealing forever the cold-blooded murder of the soldier they most hated and feared in the squadrons of the enemy
Raymond was not forgotten in England. His abdication of the protectorate had caused an unexampled sensation, and when his magnificent and manly system was contrasted with the narrow views of succeeding politicians, the period of his elevation was referred to with sorrow. The perpetual recurrence of his name, joined to most honourable testimonials in the Greek gazettes, gave up the interest he had excited. He seemed the favourite child of fortune, and his untimely loss eclipsed the world and showed forth the remnant of mankind with diminished lustre. They clung with eagerness to the hope held out that he might yet be alive. Their minister at Constantinople was urged to make the necessary perquisitions, and should his existence be ascertained to demand his release. It was to be hoped that their efforts would succeed, and that though now a prisoner, the sport of cruelty and the mark of hate, he would be rescued from danger and restored to the happiness, power and honour which he deserved. The effect of this intelligence upon my sister was striking. She never for a moment credited the story of his death. She resolved instantly to go to Greece. Reasoning and persuasion were thrown away upon her. She would endure no hindrance, no delay. It may be advanced for a truth that if argument or entreaty can turn any one from a desperate purpose, whose motive and end depends on the strength of the affections only, then it is right so to turn them, since their docility shows that neither the motive nor the end were a sufficient force to bear them through the obstacles attendant on their undertaking. If, on the contrary, their proof against expostulation, this very steadiness is an omen of success, and it becomes the duty of those who love them to assist in smoothing the obstructions in their path. Such sentiments actuated our little circle. Finding Perdita immovable, we consulted as to the best means of furthering her purpose. She could not go alone to a country where she had no friends, where she might arrive only to hear the dreadful news which must overwhelm her with grief and remorse. Adrian, whose health had always been weak, now suffered considerable aggravation of suffering from the effects of his wound. Idris could not endure to leave him in this state, nor was it right either to quit or take with us a young family for a journey of this description. I resolved at length to accompany Perdita. The separation from my Idris was painful, but necessity reconciled us to it in some degree. Necessity and the hope of saving Raymond and restoring him again to happiness and Perdita. No delay was to ensue. Two days after we came to our determination, we set out for Portsmouth and embarked. The season was May, the weather stormless. We were promised a prosperous voyage. Cherishing the most fervent hopes, embarked on the waste oceans, we saw with delight the receding shore of Britain, and on the wings of desire outspeeded our well-filled sails towards the south. The light curling waves bore us onward, and old ocean smiled at the freight of love and hope committed to his charge. It stroked gently its tempestuous plains, and the path was smoothed for us. Day and night the wind right aft gave steady impulse to our keel. Nor did rough gale or treacherous sand or destructive rock interpose an obstacle between my sister and the land which was to restore her to her first beloved, her dear heart's confessor, a heart within that heart. End of Volume 1, Chapter 10